Good evening, everyone, uh, and you're very welcome to this uh, BTOG uh, masterclass on diagnosing lung cancer. It's a uh, pre-lockdown special. Um, we've got a uh, expert uh, panel this evening to go through some of the uh, current and controversial issues around diagnosing lung cancer. Um, must uh, thank uh, our colleagues on BTOG for, for organising this and also uh, our sponsors, uh, Garden Health and Amgen. Uh, if you have any issues, uh, I'm reliably informed that uh, Dawn and Gina from the BTOG team are on standby to, uh, to answer them, so please do contact them via email. Um, you can uh, submit your questions and we'd really encourage you to do so. This We want to make this as interactive as possible. Um, please submit your questions uh, via the control panel on the side of the screen and do this at any time and we will stop at various points to answer those questions. Um, as previously, uh, you'll receive your certificate of attendance uh, after we've received your uh, feedback and uh, there's the RCP approval code uh, for for, uh, uh, for your points. So um, we're going to have quite a packed agenda. We're hoping to get through six um, key topics. So firstly about the optimal pathway, um, then about EBUS, then on uh, uh, performance status, smoking cessation, uh, some controversy about MDTs, and we're also going to touch on liquid uh, biopsy. Uh, here are some of uh, uh, my disclosures. So uh, it's a real pleasure to introduce the expert panel we've assembled today. Unfortunately, Dr. Uh, Matthew Everson has been, uh, is currently dealing with a, a medical emergency and is hoping to join us uh, uh, as soon as possible. But if I ask the panelists to introduce themselves, so firstly, Dr. Sadia Anmar. Hello, hi, I'm Sadia Anwar. I'm a chest physician at Sheffield Teaching Hospitals. Uh, Dr. Arjun Nair. Hi everyone, um, I'm Arjun Nair, a chest radiologist at um, UCLH, University College London Hospital, uh, and an associate um, on the professor at uh, UCL. Uh, Josie Roberts. Hello, I'm Josie Roberts, Macmillan Lung Cancer Nurse at the Rotherham NHS Foundation Trust. I'm also a committee member for Lung Cancer Nurse in UK. And Dr. Beth Sage. Hi, I'm Beth Sage. I'm a respiratory consultant at uh, Raigmore Hospital in Inverness. And I'm Neil Navani. I'm a chest physician at UCLH. Right, let's get uh, straight into it. Now, while our heads have been turned quite rightly towards COVID, you may not have noticed, but the um, National Optimal Lung Cancer Pathway has been updated and uh, version three was recently published with a couple of interesting updates, particularly around um, diagnostic bundles and time treatment pathways for thoracic surgery, the medical oncology and radiotherapy. Um, so if I, um, Sadia, if I could ask you, what are the uh, main challenges and solutions to implementing the optimal pathway from your perspective at the moment? Thank you. Um... I think I'm going to divide this into the sort of pre-COVID era and COVID era because um, we all thought that the challenges were tremendous, um, huge, and possibly this was even unrealistic to deliver. And that was even before COVID, the COVID pandemic hit us. Um, I think the challenges initially can broadly categorised into firstly getting buy-in from all the right people to deliver this because it is ambitious and it is challenging. Um, secondly, it was in terms of organising services. We are a complex tumour site, uh, which cuts across multiple specialties, multiple directorates. And the way our services are organised makes it very difficult to implement change across the cuts across the whole of the pathway. Um, and thirdly, of course, it involved um, developing, expanding capacity at every level in every single part of our pathway. So, so this was no mean feat, um, but many solutions presented them fairly readily. Um, Nationally, obviously, once we gained NHS approval for the NMLCP, that meant that effectively trusts were mandated to deliver this, and that was hugely important in terms of being able to persuade people. Um, council alliances were then developed to coordinate regional services as well as um, funding to, so that we could, most, most hospitals work on a hub and spoke model, um, and we needed that regional configuration to, to successfully implement this. 
Um, we also benefited from um, GERF developing a separate, lung, a separate work stream for lung cancer, and that's been hugely helpful in terms of assessing each hospital against, the, against this, these um, timescales, uh, these milestones, and then actually holding us all to account in terms of delivering this. Locally, um, my, my previous role, I was a chest physician at Nottingham, and I led a project to try to implement this, mainly as a response to our very poor cancer waiting times. Um, and I think that one of the most important functions we can serve is actually advocacy for this for our, for our services. Um, it's important to emphasise that clinical and corporate aims are completely aligned because our corporate colleagues want uh, our cancer performance to be improved, stroke excellent. We want that as clinicians and our patients want that too. There's also a very good evidence base for faster pet pathways in terms of patient outcomes and patient experience and we shouldn't forget that because we all know that, but I don't think it's always clear that when we're speaking to other people outside our services that that's appreciated. Um, we need to know our local data and we need to um, process map our services so that we can then make, implement the changes that we recognise are needed and we can make the business cases because if we don't ask for things, we won't get them. Um, then COVID happened and I just wanted to draw your attention to... Um, a report from the UKLCC called COVID-19 Matters, which was recently published. And I think this slide really nicely summarises um, the fact that we cannot overstate the impact of COVID-19 on our services. And it's been an absolute tragedy for our patients, really. And you can see that at every level, um, it has impacted on the care of our patients. Um, lung cancer CT screening pilots um, were stopped. Um, we know that referrals to the two-week rate lung services fell dramatically, so in, in nationally down to about 30%. There was also a reduction in referrals for chest x-rays. Um, we had restricted access to our own services in terms of our diagnostic capacity, and particularly EBUS was a problem because obviously AGP, there were far fewer procedures going on. We had staff off, um, and the, because of the condition of our bronchoscopy suites, our endoscopy suites, the capacity within each list was further reduced. Um, treatment schedules changed. The delivery of palliative care was made more difficult because obviously patients couldn't have visitors, for example, um, and lung cancer clinical trials and research uh, were stopped. So hugely dramatic. And I think it's fair to say that although this affected a number of clinical specialties, um, lung cancer was one of the hardest hit and it was one of, the, one of the tumor sites that was most slow to recover in terms of cancer referrals. There are a number of things that we can do to try to, in parallel, we have to accept that we have to live with COVID and we can't, our patients can't afford to wait till COVID is over for us to, um, you know, um, give due attention to our services. Um, I think it would be remiss of me to mention anything about the NMRCP without emphasising that there's no point having a fantastic pathway if no one's referred in. And so I think our primary, primary aim should be um, to engage with awareness campaigns, both in terms of the public and primary care, to make sure that patients are still being referred in, to make sure that the mantra of got a cough, get a chest x-ray hasn't changed to got a cough, stay at home. It's really important that we send that, send that message clearly. Um, a number of initiatives have been proposed that actually align nicely in terms of protecting our patients from COVID as well as delivering on the NLCP um, uh, performance. Um, we need to make sure our patients are safe from COVID as far as possible and that means trying to establish clean sites and dirty sites and um, what is being advocated previously that fits nicely as diagnostic community hubs where these centres are more likely to be well closer to patients' homes, easier to access, hopefully clean sites, COVID-free or covid light. Uh, where patients can undergo CT scans, blood tests, spirometry, for example. The further benefit of that is it also reinforces the model of one-stop shop, so minimising the attendance of patients um, in secondary care facilities and, in theory, hopefully reducing their exposure to, um, to COVID. Um, it's also important that we look at endoscopy capacity, and obviously, as I've mentioned, EBUS was particularly hard hit. Um, I think we do need to explore those possibilities of moving some endoscopy procedures out into, for example, the private sector. And that's usually the simple, more simple, less complex procedures so that we can free up more EBUS capacities. It's very difficult for us to do the more complex procedures elsewhere at other sites. Um, but that's, that's something that needs to be explored because we need to get our capacity back on track, really. Um, also, virtual MDTs. This, in theory, is hugely beneficial. It can um, release capacity of clinicians because there's less travel time. Um, and, um, but, but this really needs the infrastructure to support it, both in terms of IT and admin. And I think we have to really push for that and make sure that we have 
adequate resources to deliver this so that we're not trying to deliver virtual MDTs and actually all it means is that we're delivering a poor quality MDT discussion. Um, remote consultations, I have mixed feelings about this. I think clearly there is a need there to protect our patients and it's, it's uh, beneficial to, to do that. But there are um, a number of concerns around this. Um, partly our patient population is slightly older and you know they're not always um, as tech savvy, I mean, I speak for myself and I'm not very tech savvy. Um, so um, it, it can be difficult to have those virtual consultations, for example, with video. I don't know about you, but when I'm in clinic, um, at the moment I undertake those consultations by telephone and I'm not sure how many people I know still who use landline, but my patients do. Um, so, so we need to be careful about not making ourselves inaccessible through virtual consultations and making sure we can and we do see those patients face to face who need to be. But obviously there are many gains through virtual consultations if we have the right um, uh, setup. Um, it's also, I mean, I want to just mention that at the beginning of October, um, Professor Sir Mike Witch's report on diagnostics in the NHS was published. And I think that it's hugely important that we implement those recommendations because it covered so many aspects, not only in terms of service configuration, but also um, equipment and hugely importantly workforce. And I think unless we address those issues in parallel, we really won't be able to deliver this. And I think it is our responsibility to keep advocating for this, COVID or no COVID, our patients still need us. Thanks, Sadia. That's uh, that's really helpful. Um, Beth, um, how is the optimal pathway viewed in Scotland? I mean, technically, it's an NHS England document, isn't it? But uh, how, how is the, the the timelines in the pathway viewed in Scotland, and will you be implementing it? So, so I, for those of you that don't know, I moved up to Scotland two years ago and previously worked at UCL in London and was, uh, was heavily involved with, with Neil and implementation of the National Optimal Lung Cancer Pathway within UCL. So moving up to Scotland, I've had to get used to a very different um, NHS structure in many ways and different NHS priorities. And one of the clear absences for me was the fact that at the moment there are no plans to implement the National Optimal Lung Cancer Pathway in Scotland. Now that's not coming from a clinician perspective because actually discussions amongst most of my lung cancer colleagues uh, throughout Scotland is that we should be pushing the Scottish Government and NHS Scotland to look at implementing the National Optimal Lung Cancer Pathway in the future. I think we have a, a couple of real significant concerns is already we know that per head of population lung cancer incidence in Scotland is higher than in England, probably largely due to deprivation and geographical um, locations and the smoking uh, rates in Scotland. We also know that I specifically cover a very remote and rural population. So we, uh, as a health board, I offer cancer care to patients living in almost half of the landmass of Scotland. So we have to deliver uh, lung cancer services equivalent I would like to think to those they could get in a big urban centre. But obviously that's much more challenging with the geography and the distances that our elderly population have to, have to, to cover. Um, we already know that our patients do poorer in terms of outcomes. Uh, so if you, if you, the, the greater the distance from a cancer center, we know the poorer the survival. Um, and, and that's something we, we have to take into serious consideration when we're thinking about our pathway. So although there are no uh, national plans to introduce national, the, the National Optimal Lung Cancer Pathway, it is something as clinicians we are striving to achieve regardless of targets that, that are implemented. One thing uh, we find specifically is often the upfront part of the pathway, which I think Arjun may, may speak about at some point, is often easier for us to control and to shorten, um, which uh, surprised me a little bit. We, we have much greater difficulty with our time to staging investigations, and, and I know that's something we'll come on to later, and that's largely because of our, because of our geographical location. I think one thing we found in uh, during COVID, as, as Sadia has very well uh, described to us already, is that actually a lot of the innovations that um, were being brought in for the National Optimal Lung Cancer Pathway have been hugely beneficial during COVID. So, you know, upfront straight to CT triaging, so we're not seeing patients in clinic that we don't need to. 
Um, we are lucky in our geography in that we have a number of CT scanners around the region. And so we were able to have um, hospital scanners so scanners in our more remote hospitals that had fewer covid patients and that could effectively be green scanners so we were still able to deliver a, a safe pathway for our patients our biggest issue as i know has been across the uk is the number of referrals coming in and as sadia very clearly said cough does not mean stay at home it does still mean get a chest x-ray uh, and that's that concerns me gravely moving forward <coughs> Um, we already have virtual MDT set up and that's the way we run our, our thoracic surgical services uh, for our patients uh, and that continued throughout COVID. So we were, we, we were um, lucky in that respect, very few uh, changes to our, to our MDT. We already do a lot of video consultations for our patients and actually whilst I am very aware of the limitations that they offer, actually patients do really quite like it. Um, if you ask a patient if they want to sit in a car for three hours to come and see me for 20 minutes, um, most of them say no. Um, now that also we found the benefit of that is that, that it's much easier for families who are distant from their relatives to be able to be involved in the consultation. And so the individual patient may not set, be set up with an iPad or, or internet access, but often family members are. And so we've had uh, real benefits, I think, in, in terms of including family much more in discussions and, and complex discussions with patients. And that I think has been, been a slight benefit. Um, we are definitely uh, moving back towards more face-to-face -face consultations and we're always more aware because of our travel time of bundling up our investigations so quite often we'll get the CT scan up front and then we have more of a, a, a diagnostic clinic so a patient will come see the clinician get their lung function often stay overnight get their EBUS the following day so we're able to bundle our investigations a lot more so I think actually in some respects that's helped us to streamline our pathway. Um, that's, that's great. Um, Josie if I could turn to you um, What's been the patient sort of perspective of the optimal pathway, perhaps, you know, pre-COVID and then perhaps now that we're, we're living with COVID being endemic, what, what's the, the patient view of being rushed through the, uh, the pathway? Certainly the patient perspective, both before and during COVID, I think has remained very positive. Um, patients um, want reduced hospital visits. If they can get access to same-day investigations, albeit quite tiring, as long as this is explained and patients understand why we're doing this, they're very accepting of this. And I think certainly even during COVID, um, patients have, have appreciated the lengths we've gotten to to try and make sure the investigations are done in a safe manner as well. So I think that's it's the speed is always wanted. Patients want a diagnosis yesterday and they want treatment tomorrow, um, essentially. I think, however, we've, it's really important that we do respect and acknowledge that for some of our patients, and not just elderly, you know, all patients, um, it's been really overwhelming. Certainly, everything about COVID for everybody has been quite overwhelming. People have been scared to come to hospital in some circumstance. So certainly from a, a nurse, a CNS point of view, really supporting patients before they come to clinic, explaining what will happen sometimes has, has been really helpful as well. But I think the overall it's remained very positive. Great. Um, so Arjun, you'll be very familiar with the um, front end of the pathway in particular. This bit hasn't been updated uh, and remains uh, as is shown there. One of the challenges I've always felt about this pathway is that sort of minus three to zero days of getting a rapid report for a chest x-ray and getting them through to CT. What's, is that still feasible, do you think, in a, in a COVID era? How do we, how do we deliver it? Um, so I think, I mean, this part of the pathway, Neil, has always been uh, something that many departments I know around the country have risen to uh, the challenge that it that it's brought up by essentially reconfiguring uh, their services in line with a sort of you know central hub model as they have in Manchester um, quite quite rightly to see if that same day reporting or at least rapid turnaround um, with ideally with a more um, 
uh, a more focused request form for lung cancer, high lung cancer suspicion um, to, to basically facilitate the, the diagnostic probability, the uh, assessment and the communication of the result uh, to the GP. Um, many departments have also taken on uh, the ownership of that abnormal chest x-ray report uh, by essentially upfront uh, informing both the GP and the patient that in the event of an abnormality, we may choose to push through a CT directly, uh, as they have uh, in pilots that were uh, carried out by the ACE program in the, uh, uh, with Cancer Research UK, I think about four or five years ago now, that data is uh, out, out in the public domain, so with, with, uh, with good results. Um, so that's a, that was a nice example of uh, radiology departments um, delivering on the um, ideal of this even before uh, the optimal lung cancer pathway was in its um, published form. But I think for the vast majority of departments, you're absolutely right. It's, um, it's, it's a real challenge because for one thing, um, many places are still having to outsource uh, reporting of chest x-rays but because in the first instance, there's a shortage of chest radiologists. Uh, it's one of the, um, one of the key subspecialty uh, deficiencies um, that the Royal College of Radiologists uh, Workforce Census identified. And um, uh, across the board, generally, obviously, we are uh, facing a, a big gap uh, in radiology provision with, with a shortage of consultant radiologists anyway. Um, so that, of course, brings the... Uh, so that, that, of course, has raised the possibility of uh, reporting radiographers or uh, reporting ancillary professionals of whatever description. Um, and again, I think that there are definitely positives to that, um, to that uh, model. Um, but of course, rightly so, I believe, um, um, those, uh, those also come with certain penalties that we have to be aware of. For instance, radiographers themselves are in short supply. Um, the, the society of radiographers would, would tell us generally that they have a big shortfall. Many departments that had implemented uh, reporting radiographers um, have managed to keep them by and large for appendicular uh, work, um, but for chest radiography especially, uh, because they are usually slightly more senior, uh, they're very capable individuals obviously, but when there's a shortfall of radiographers to deliver their primary function, uh, essentially imaging um, acquisition, then they get pushed off to the shop floor. And then of course, there's the issue of uh, training provision time for uh, radiologists in training. So uh, registrars, et cetera. So that's, uh, that, those are some of the advantages and disadvantages, but um, especially when there's a highly trained, highly uh, motivated service as they have, um, for example, at the Homerton um, Hospital um, where Nick Watson eats uh, one of uh, you know very, very well-known reporting radiographers has delivered services and est established their cost effectiveness, et cetera. I think it is feasible. So I think we have a challenge in radiology to try and implement a more integrated model as a response um, to the optimal lung cancer pathway. And I'll be very honest, I think thus far, some of the limitations have been that it's not been clear that there is actually a financial, um, a financial envelope that comes with this, this to incentivize a reconfiguration. I think if that does happen and we are able to get our ducks in order with a nice clean pathway for GPs to understand that this is going to happen to patients, that patients also come pre-warned, pre-prepared, as Josie says, so that the anxieties perhaps have been addressed a little early on, we should be able to get this done. But, uh, and of course, there, there is that other issue there on the pathway, the, the straight to CT as well. In theory, I think it, it, it's a great idea, um, but I think the downstream effects of it have to be clear, for instance, what to do with all the incidental findings, et cetera. These discussions are not different to that, uh, that of course we, we, we hear about with CT screening for lung cancer as well. So I think we, we are okay on, on that front. But the, the hardest thing about these upfront straight to CT reports is generally trying to get find the people to report them, uh, because by and large you do need thoracic radiologists. I feel, uh, to, in other words, people who know what an early lung cancer looks like, because those are the ones we're trying to catch in the vast majority. Thanks, Arjun. Um, I think we all know that the optimal pathway is designed to reduce the uh, time to treatment down to forty nine days. I just wanted to highlight that the revised version just published does allow for uh, a little bit of leeway on that where there are patients who have been considered uh, for surgery who may be borderline to allow MDTs to, uh, to arrange for further testing like CPEX testing or a specialist referral or prehabilitation or even a, uh, a second opinion or high-risk meeting. So, so there has been some 
key changes, I think, to the uh, to the optimal pathway. And I think it's I would urge you all to have a look at the document that's uh, uh, been shared on the link as well. So let's move on to uh, the second topic, endobronchial ultrasound. So again, um, another important document has been published uh, by the Lung Cancer Clinical Expert Group um, uh, and um, managed by uh, NHS England, uh, which is an eBus service specification. So this really does uh, highlight, I think, the uh, important difference between a diagnostic eBus and a staging eBus. And I think this is now filtered into our uh, clinical practice routinely. So a diagnostic eBus occurs in patients who usually have advanced disease and the focus of the procedure really is to obtain adequate tissue uh, for uh, a full predictive biomarker panel. Whereas a staging eBus um, is going to provide an accurate uh, nodal stage. And typically that would mean starting at N3 nodes, systematically reviewing N3, N2, N1 nodes, and also um, sampling any lymph nodes that are at least uh, five millimeters in, in, uh, in diameter, and also any nodes that are PET positive on a, uh, a preceding PET scan. And you'll recall that the NICE guidelines from last year uh, state that a PET scan should be, uh, should be performed prior to, to an endobronchial ultrasound. Um, but Beth, what about um, staging eBus in the, in the real world? Um, what, what do you think the challenges are? And this document in particular, this eBus service specification also uh, emphasizes the importance of EUSB. So the bronchoscope being placed in the esophagus. Um, what, are your, what are your thoughts on that? So uh, uh, certainly uh, as far as we are concerned up, up here, and I know is the case for many of my colleagues in Scotland, just from our discussions at, at, at meetings, is that um, we find our accessibility to PET scanning incredibly limited. So for us, we, uh, we often have a two to three week delay for a PET scan, whereas EBUS can obviously be done in-house by our own team and we have control over those lists. Uh, and we've been very lucky in that we have good capacity to do EBUS usually within a week of uh, seeing a patient in clinic. So, so we do, I have to confess, work slightly outside of the NICE guidelines in that we cannot always get a PET scan before an EBUS because it causes significant delays in the pathway. And we feel often it's more appropriate that we get on and get the investigations uh, done. And if we delayed that EBUS, then um, you know, that, that would have a significant impact on, on a lot of our patients. So the majority of our EBUSes, I think, are done upfront diagnostically and only after the PET scan subsequently, they may then unfortunately have to have a second procedure if we feel the staging uh, EBUS is clearly required. I, I think it would be if we could improve our access to PET CT and our staging investigations then I think it would be much easier to deliver a staging EBUS uh, more routinely. We find the accessibility to EUSB, we, we really don't have any accessibility to that. It's very much on a case-by-case -case basis, asking for a favor from you know, a friendly gastroenterologist of which we don't have many that do, do EUS. So I think that's definitely more challenging for, for our patient population. Thank you. Um, Arjun, from an imaging perspective, um, what do you think the limitations are of uh, uh, PET and CT uh, sort of for, for this patient group? So, I mean, I think the, uh, on its own, of course, unimodality staging on the means down and using um, CT alone, um, as we know from the, the papers prior to PET, um, generally was essentially had a very uh, high a potentially high uh, hit, um, rate of um, false negatives. So essentially sensitivity was, was much reduced. And I think the, the, the PET work uh, generally obviously really, really raised the profile and proved the case for PET. So and the integrated, with integrated PET and CT now, I think um, the, the challenge essentially the, a negative PET and a negative CT as if you've pointed out in, the, in this um, flow diagram is essentially quite very, very, very reassuring. Uh, and especially when it's a, when it looks essentially like a stage one, 
Um, we know, of course, there are times when, when a larger tumor um, has, uh, has the capacity to have metastasized um, uh, bypassing the mediastinum, but that's actually quite, quite a rare occurrence. And of course, not an issue. There's, there's nothing we can do there because the mediastinum is genuinely cancer-free, cancer-sterile. So I, I think, that in, in other words, the imaging there is pretty accurate. It's just the behavior of the tumor skipping the mediastinum, if you like. Um, but so I think, I think overall, we're pretty happy that between using the two strategies concurrently and of course adding in eBus as a third leg um, helps us with, with the mediastinal staging. Where, where I know we, we fall down, of course, is when nodes are just small, um, even with advances in uh, reconstruction techniques and uh, um, slice thickness, um, feature, um, so acquisition um, mechanisms for PET-CT. Um, we know that smaller nodes usually in the order of uh, you know, five or four millimeters. So um, unless there's quite a good concentration of tumor in them can be missed. Uh, and of course, we, we have seen those practically speaking in our MDTs. But I think actually overall, uh, we've, we've, we are at a stage now, I think where quite confidently we feel that we can make sure that the uh, sensitivity of that combination especially uh, um, uh, a negative examination on both is, is quite good and, and has a high negative predictive value. Um, but it'd be interesting always to see what, because we don't do enough EBUS on those patients uh, because it's now no longer mandated, I'd always be curious to see now if there is a correlation between uh, imaging suspicion that this, this should just be an N2 tumor to me. It looks like it should be, and then everything else on the imaging is saying otherwise. It'd be very interesting to know um, what, what the hit rate just on eBus there would be, um, because I don't think we, we know that yet. And quite, quite often we don't go that far because many of these patients don't get as systemic a nodal dissection as they should if they do go to surgery, because we try and be uh, lung conserving as far as we can. So, so I think one important group of patients, Arjun, would be those undergoing SABRE. So we're commonly faced with uh, patients with peripheral lung lesions, no enlarged nodes and a negative mediastinum. Under what circumstances should they undergo an EBUS? Bearing in mind, obviously, we're not going to be getting pathological nodal staging from that patient. And missed nodal metastases would significantly change that person's treatment uh, uh, algorithm. So are there circumstances when you would recommend in sort of an EBUS prior to SABRE, despite a negative pattern CT? I think that's a great um, question. Well, one thing is, of course, so um, I guess the, the two common scenarios we encounter, of course, are when the lesions that are that are meant to be uh, going to SABRE because they were considered not, not well enough for um, surgery. Many of them are often the same cases that we could not biopsy, perhaps less due to lung function, but often due to more to location of the tumor, uh, perhaps deep, deep in the lung, et cetera. Uh, or patient, we, we didn't want to subject the patient to the potential complication of the biopsy. And in those cases, when you don't have a histological diagnosis, despite a, state, uh, despite a negative uh, imaging investigations and low, low pre-test pre uh, probability, I think I would personally want to, uh, I think there is a recommendation there uh, for EBUS. However, I can imagine that the cost effectiveness of that strategy uh, is, is something that's quite difficult to evaluate. Um, and the second, the second time I think is when, um, despite uh, when we do have histological confirmation, um, the tumor also, and uh, I think that certain types of tumor, for example, squamous cell, et cetera, um, which we may be su uh, subjecting to SABRE. I think in those cases as well, uh, depending again on, on a case-by-case -case basis, there may be an option, uh, sorry, there may be a good enough justification to be doing it. Um, and I think in time, we will obviously be coming to the, onto the issue of liquid biopsy later, but I think in time, we may find that using imaging techniques uh, such as deep learning and liquid biopsy in combination, we may be able to stratify or phenotype these tumors into groups that should and should and should should require a more aggressive staging. Thank you. That's really interesting. So um, let's move on from eBus to assessing performance status. So this is something that we all do. Um, in our diagnostic pathways, as we know, really crucial to uh, uh, to patients. It's really crucial.
structural uh, because it can determine treatments. Um, one thing that I'm sure you're aware of is that it was originally di uh, designed to, uh, to quantify toxicity from systemic therapies. Um, and what's been shown repeatedly, uh, particularly from data from the National Lung Cancer Audit and other large data sets, is that the performance status is extremely strongly prognostic. It is to some degree predictive of response, but perhaps nowhere near as well predictive. And increasingly, we are realizing with personalized therapies and perhaps with immunotherapy that these patients may benefit from, um, uh, from some of these systemic therapies. And uh, I'll point you to the PEPS-2 trial, which is an excellent um, UK oncology led trial published in the Lancet Respiratory Medicine earlier this year uh, that showed that uh, patients with performance status two still did get benefit from, um, from first-line immunotherapy. So, um, Josie, our measurement of performance status in our, in our clinics has always been a slightly controversial area. Who do you think should be um, assessing performance status? Should it be the patient, the CNS, respiratory physician, oncologist, or who, who do you think is best placed to do it? And, um, you know, as someone with a vested interest in the National Lung Cancer Audit, I want that, we want that number in the National Lung Cancer Audit, but who should provide it? I think we should all be looking at performance status continually, not just pre-diagnosis and at diagnosis, but throughout treatment, as we know it can change dramatically from week to week, and certainly patients start to respond to treatment. So it's, it's everyone's responsibility. Um, and I think certainly from a CNS perspective, what a patient might see in clinic in terms of a consultant can change when they come out of that consultation and we discuss things further with them and their carers and the family about what they can do or potentially do or what they, they can't do. So I do think it's everybody's responsibility. But I think more importantly is actually that we clarify with the patients and carers what we mean by performance status you know what is it we're trying to achieve that they fully understand how this might affect their treatment plan and they need to understand how they can improve their performance status as well certainly by exercise diet smoking cessation is essential in this um, concordance to medication for symptom management these are all key areas where they could actually be improving their performance status if it's just still getting a good night's sleep and sometimes it's the anxiety issues around the diagnosis that obviously can affect, affect everything um, and I think that as well we need to be very honest about performance status I think despite patients best efforts sometimes they won't improve enough to have treatments that they want and I think that's where the honesty and reality really does need to come into it but throughout, I think it's so important that we constantly reiterate improving performance status for improving quality of life, for improving symptom management and improving palliative care. It's key to the entire pathway, but it's everybody's responsibility really to get that message across. Thanks, Josie. And as we know, performance status is a fairly blunt tool. Um, Several groups uh, around the country have tried to measure, or have been measuring rather, sort of patient-reported outcome measures. What are, what are the key sort of patient-reported measures do you think that we should be trying to um, take into account in the diagnostic pathway? I think there's certainly a place for patient-reported outcome measurements, as there is with the patient-reported experience measures, with holistic need assessment measures. Um, there's lots of tools out there. I don't think we can get away from excellent communication skills in whatever we do throughout our consultations that we know patients are understanding what we're saying and we understand them and that they've, they've taken on board what's been said. But I think certainly from looking at PROMS and PREMS, I think now with COVID, it gives us an excellent opportunity to do much more research into any measure that we're wanting to introduce into the lung cancer pathway because there are several of them about. I think certainly looking at our new ways of working, patient experience of this, the effects of remote consultations, I think you know, it's a valuable time to capture their, their experience. Is that something that they want? Looking at all the positives and the negative aspects 
of how we've been working. So I think, you know, is it a time that we actually design something more specific to, to lung cancer and what COVID has, has caused during this, this um, pandemic? Thanks, Tracy. Um, so, um, Sadia, there's been a lot of interest in the uh, clinical frailty scale. Uh, and I think this is gaining a bit of traction now uh, from many centres, Newcastle, Christie and others, uh, starting to implement this routinely in their uh, uh, diagnostic workup. Um, do you think it should be used? Should we all be using it uh, uh, routinely? A couple of things to say. I think I'd agree with you that the performance status is a blunt tool, but we do know that to a large degree it does work in terms of predicting prognosis and predicting tolerance of treatment. Um, one of the criticisms of performance status is this matter that it's subjective, as you've rightly mentioned. Um, but although it's subjective in terms of the absolute number and that that, that kappa isn't, isn't, you know, is only of moderate agreement between clinicians, if you look at the category, so PS0 to 2 versus PS3 to 4, you get much better agreement. And essentially, they're really the cutoffs that we tend to use in terms of um, deciding whether or not someone is potentially suitable to active anti-cancer treatment. Um, so I don't think we should be binning performance status just yet. Um, the, the issues with the Rockwood um, clinical, clinical frailty scale, it's a, it's, a, it's a screening tool. And the role that's proposed really is whether um, it has a role in stratification of patients in terms of either selecting patients for treatment or selecting of that subpopulation, those who might benefit from um, a comprehensive geriatric assessment interventions. And by intervention, I mean things like OT, physio, dietetics, um, attention to polypharmacy, um, and um, uh, measures like this to, to uh, addressing mood, for example, um, to see whether or not those interventions can um, improve patients' prospects for active anti-cancer treatments, particularly systemic treatment and whether that in turn improves patient outcomes. Um, the difficulty is that the CFS, um, uh, it, it isn't validated in patients under 65, um, and it isn't validated in cancer populations. It was developed um, in, acute, in an acute medical um, context. So we have to be a little bit careful about uh, how, um, how, how, many power, how, much, how many parallels we can draw between the different services. But there is now um, uh, taking, there is an initiative to take that forward via the Specialty Clinical Frailty Network. And as you mentioned, um, the Christie, Newcastle, and um, in particular, Guy St. Thomas's are very active and they have um, active uh, frailty programs really to help our patients. As far as I'm aware, the clinical outcomes from those, and they're very preliminary, this is still, you know, I watch this space area. Um, it does suggest that where patients have been assessed, screened, and then um, interventions uh, undertaken in the appropriate patients, um, those patients are more likely to complete their chemotherapy treatment uh, regimens um, to completion, and there is less toxicity and improved quality of life for those patients. But what I haven't yet seen is any evidence that it improves um, clinical outcomes in terms of progression-free survival or overall survival. So I think it's difficult. Ha having said that, uh, there is also a role for us to consider whether or not this is actually part and parcel of best supportive care. Um, leaving aside everything else actually is our falling patient. Are they going to benefit from a geriatric assessment? My, my gut instinct is they probably will. Um, so, so I think there are a number of considerations. Thanks very much, Sadia. Um. So uh, the next topic we're going to, uh, can we have the next slide, please? Thank you. So the next topic we're going to cover is uh, very briefly is just smoking cessation. And I wanted to again point out two, um, two developments. First of all, that it's a nice quality standard now that um, adults with, uh, on the diagnostic pathway should receive evidence-based stop smoking support. And that's been interestingly worded, I think, because it, suggest not just offered but should actually receive evidence-based uh, smoking support. The other thing um, to so help support monitoring of that is that there's been a change to the COSD version 9 data set. You'll, you'll be familiar with the Cancer Outcome Services data set that every trust fills in that provides data uh, to the National Cancer Registry uh, which also feeds into the National Lung Cancer Audit. And there are two new bespoke um, uh, uh, items within COSD version 9 
that will feed directly through to the national lung cancer audit we hope in the future so collecting not just tobacco smoking status but also was the treatment for tobacco uh, given to the patient so hopefully there we'll be able to align um, data collection uh, and a, uh, a nice quality standard uh, there. Um, Josie, how do patients tend to react to, to smoking cessation advice in, in your experience on, on their diagnostic pathway? I think again it, this, it does vary. I think the majority of patients certainly in the initial consultation um, do want smoking cessation advice, will accept that, do take our local um, advice even sometimes just by ringing a help number, we have um, Get Healthy Rotherham. So they will take that on board. Certainly anyone having a bronchoscopy or investigations is often enough to stop them smoking. Um, and obviously they get a lot of um, family encouragement. Sometimes that can be a little bit judgmental and I think we have to be careful of that. But I think it's not just at the initial diagnosis for stopping smoking, it's also trying to support these patients to continue to stop smoking as well throughout. Um, and especially, again, with the added pressures of COVID, although hopefully people are stopping smoking more, I think our client group, sometimes it may just be too much for them. So I think we need to continue that throughout the pathway. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's really important that we acknowledge how difficult this may be for patients as well. So it's all about encouraging them to stop and actually praising them when we know they have stopped, when we're asking them questions, give them some, some merit that they've actually stopped smoking. I think that's needed as well. And also perhaps providing them with some of this very strong evidence base we have now for the, you know, for the benefits of smoking cessation, uh, even during and after a diagnosis of lung cancer. Um, okay, let's move on to the next topic. So um, the MDT, this is obviously a crucial part of uh, um, our uh, diagnostic pathway, part of our uh, lung cancer care. It's perhaps not something that we uh, talk enough about. Um, Arjun, just briefly, what, what do you think makes a, a good MDT and do we need still a separate uh, diagnostic and treatment MDT? Um, <clears throat> well, I think um, the first thing that, that makes it probably function um, well and deliver on its intended purpose, Neil, is um, a, clear, a clear purpose for the patient's discussion. But obviously, when it's a diagnostic MDT, I think it's pretty, pretty well understood what the purpose is. Um, and, but for the more complex patients, where you refer to as, which for now we'll call it part of the treatment component of the MDT, um, I think often, practically speaking, and from a radiology point of view, uh, two things end up happening. First is we don't really have a clear question, usually. Uh, the second thing is when there is a clear question, uh, often we find the, the discussion is repetitive and often has been answered either in the report or in previous discussions, uh, but hasn't been communicated. Uh, and that leads to the second thing, which makes the MDT probably uh, successful um, if it's going to be, is a clear outcome and clear communication documentation uh, that everybody ideally is actually able to sign off on uh, in real time before uh, before proceeding to the next patient, and I'm aware that that is uh, you know that that sounds idealistic, that sounds impractical, but in many places, um, I think, for instance, where, where my old patch, um, guys in St. Thomas's, um, it was possible to for everyone to have a quick look at the outcome, make sure that the poor oncology registrar who was typing up the outcome didn't feel unduly pressured um, to to come you know, to to synthesize all this amazing data into one uh, cogent uh, summary. Uh, but everyone actually was responsible for their own bits. So there may be actually be a, a way to, to communicate that much better. Um, but, but going back to that, uh, that point about diagnostics, et cetera, um, I, think, I think that's right. I think often we may not need, uh, for the clearer cut cases, we may not need to discuss this. Uh, that's controversial, I know, but um, other than a rubber stamping exercise, but that will, will only happen, I think, if we make sure that patients are coming, are being referred to the MDM with a full, template of investigations already performed, the minimum data set, if you like to call that, call it that, so that everyone can actually make an informed decision quickly. Because otherwise, as you know, we, we spend a long time uh, pushing these patients through uh, what is essentially a very well-documented pathway that should be happening prior to them coming. And, and they end up being discussed on that MDT 
uh, far, far too often before any decisions can be made. Thanks, Arjun. Um, Beth, very briefly, uh, I've always been interested in where the medical legal standpoint of MDTs, and actually there was a really interesting paper published recently uh, specifically addressing this. Just very briefly, can you take us through some of the key points? Yes, so this is a really interesting one for me because it's not something I'd really given any active thought to and, and I think that's probably similar to a number of my colleagues. I've always felt very reassured by the MDT that the whole purpose of it is it, is it makes your cancer pathway more efficient, uh, it, it's associated with improved survival, better adherence to guidelines, it's there almost as a medical legal support in itself to, to make sure that your patients are getting the best treatment according to, according to the current best practice. But I hadn't, hadn't really clearly thought about the, the medical legal responsibilities of the MDT in, in reverse. And so I think this paper has been really interesting. Um, and, you know, a number of things that stood out for me is, is uh, issues over over patient consent and privacy. And, and I think, again, we discussed this offline before the meeting. This isn't, I, I don't routinely say to my patients or gain consent from my patients to discuss it at the MDT because I consider it best standard practice. Um, but, but actually, from a medical legal perspective, it may be that this is considered uh, an additional consultation or an additional discussion with other colleagues. And actually, their recommendations are that it, you should gain formal consent, and that should be documented clearly in medical records before you discuss a patient at an MDT. Um, I think another issue that often arises within our MDT is uh, around whose responsibility is it to deliver, uh, deliver the outcome of the MDT, who, who carries that through. Now, the way we run our, our MDT is that really all patients are usually discussed with a member of the lung cancer team uh, beforehand. So even if we haven't seen them in person, we've had a, a, a consultation or a discussion with the referring member. And we document very clearly in our MDT, which individual MDT member is responsible for carrying out the actions of the MDT and communicating that to the patient, to the GP, to the referring doctor. But interestingly, in the paper, they're suggesting that it, it's really the responsibility of the referring doctor who refers into the MDT. Now, I think that's fine when it's one of the core members of the MDT or someone who is used to delivering, um, uh, you know, cancer care or lung cancer care. But it, that does make me slightly concerned if you've got, for example, an orthopedic team asking a question and then they're responsible for communicating that with the patient because it may be that they're not in a position to answer the questions that the patient may have. Um, so, so I thought that was also a, an interesting outcome. Uh, and then I think probably my favourite one is how do you how do you deal with disagreements within the MDT? And and this is not some this is something we have not infrequently. Um, you know can everybody truly agree on a final outcome? I have to say most of the time that is the case, but, but it, it is interesting from a liability perspective um, that the, the evidence or, or the data in this paper is suggesting that actually if somebody feels they can't support that decision, that should be clearly documented. Uh, and often uh, what, what then should happen is that, that um, the different, possibilities should be discussed directly with the patient uh, and again that's something we often have with our MDT is that we have uh, you know maybe two choices and those are then discussed in more detail with the patient. Thanks Beth really interesting I think from a from a medical legal perspective. Um, Sadia just briefly I've always wondered about how we work out what a good MDT is. Are there sort of metrics do you think that we should be measuring, that we can audit ourselves to work out whether we are a good, uh, well-performing MDT? I think you've given me the hardest question of the entire agenda. Um, <laughs> uh, I think trying to assess the performance of an MDTs, which, by which we mean the whole team rather than just the, the meeting, is complex and difficult and nuanced. Um, I, I've just highlighted two reports you'll be familiar with, the ones from the UKLCC at the top in 2012, and the second is an NHS England um, uh, publication last year about streamlining MDT meetings. And then there's also this publication in CR UK, and I'm just highlighting this because that graph shows, in my view, um, the fundamental reason why we have any problems with our MDT as, as, as a service. And that's basically demonstrating that the activity of the MDTs have increased 
hugely and yet the workforce really hasn't so we're under pressure and I think that's what leads to our, our, our difficulties. Um, in terms of how we can measure it, well, I mean, you're, you know, we've, you've touched on the nice quality standards and they set out what they define as high quality care areas for improvement. But this can be really summed up as assessing our performance against um, national standards. And there's lots of national, national guidance out. There's lots of, you know, nice guidance, peer review, etc. There's, there's NLCP. We can, we can measure ourselves against numerous metrics and we can keep doing that all day, every day. Um, but all of that really is a means to an end. And that, that end is patient outcome and patient experience. And I think we have to be better. We do have measures of patient outcome, but I think one area where I think we're um, weak actually is in assessing patient experience of patients in our services. We do have the National Cancer Patient Experience Survey, but if you drill down, when you try to look at the number of patients in your service in a particular trust, the numbers are very small. And when you look further, the responses, it's very difficult to tease out what the responses refer to, whether you know, the information provided was adequate in the respiratory medicine or oncology or radiology. Um, and, and I don't, I think we need to have much more um, institution-based data um, around patient experience. Um, the other thing I think we should be better at is, I, I put it as a category of timeliness. This isn't just about performance against um, the faster diagnosis standard and the NLCP treatment time. It's also, for example, um, you know, you could look at effectively the efficiency of an MDT. So for example, what proportion of our patients will end up on um, the diagnostic standards of care pathway where they're not formally discussed at an MDT um, unless, they, unless they, there's a very good reason for complexity and they're managed outside of that, but still looked after by the MDT and still tracked appropriately. We're also, I think, not great at um, screening every single patient for every eligible trial. And that might be worth something that actually we are much more aware of and much that's fed back to us directly. I know I'm guilty of this. I barely remember um, in busy clinics. I, I don't remember at all. Um, and then this might be a little bit far out, but I, I do wonder whether we actually, as a, as a public body, as the NHS, actually should be undertaking equality impact assessments of our care. And by that, I mean whether we are um, delivering um, we hear a lot about, you know, um, unwarranted variations in care, but are we really delivering uh, e equal care to all our patients? Um, and I think there are formal ways of assessing that for public bodies. And I think we don't have that for NDTs. But if you add up the number of patients in our services across the country, um, I think that is something that we should look at, whether that's to do with protected characteristics or whether it's to do with, for example, age or urban versus rural living. I think that's something that we probably should be um, looking at further. Thanks, Adia. That's food for thought, isn't it? Just in the last few minutes, um, I want to touch on something that's approaching us rapidly, I think, from, uh, from left field, that we all need to be aware about, I think, in our diagnostic pathway, and that's, in, uh, that's about liquid biopsies. I, I've always personally had a bit of an issue with the name because it's not obviously a biopsy, um, but we, we all understand the concept, I think, of uh, detecting circulating tumour DNA, uh, within blood. Some people use it as well, I think loosely to, to look for circulating tumour cells as well. And there's been plenty of investigation um, currently uh, that's happened and ongoing in the screening setting. Lots of excitement about uh, its role in minimal residual disease and the role in adjuvant treatments, detecting relapse, very good data already from TracerX uh, showing that. Um, and then perhaps even as biomarkers for, for using um, targeted therapies and obviously making a diagnosis when tissue is not current is not uh, adequately available and then perhaps most commonly we use it uh, uh, in the UK for um, looking for required uh, resistant mechanisms after first-line um, treatments um, but um, uh, Arjun if I could come to you very briefly in the last couple of minutes what does this mean that once we take into account sort of volume doubling time and we use EBUS for the mediastinum and we've got peripheral staging with PET, does this actually mean that CT guided biopsies might, might go out of fashion? Um, I obviously will say they'll never go out of fashion, um, but I'm going to try and hopefully justify that. Um, nothing would please us more than to be doing more useful uh, CT guided biopsies. Um, and I think actually this will probably help 
to, to get us there by integrating uh, imaging biomarkers and essentially what is a, 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 a circulating biomarker. I think we should be able to get to a more specific uh, pretest probability, a higher pretest probability, and that will help us work out two things: whether or not um, we will be happy to do away with um, tissue uh, obtained from percutaneous biopsy as a gold standard, and settle for a silver standard of high diagnostic confidence, which you know m many many uh, uh, services would say I would argue is a threshold of over seventy percent in lieu of obtaining uh, histological material. Uh, and as you know, we, we do that, we've been doing that for more than 10 years now in the interstitial lung disease setting, um, when, when, when biopsy rates have fallen tremendously, but in, in obviously in a, for, for a different disease category. So I think, I think actually it won't, it won't uh, displace CT-guided biopsy, but I think it will actually help us make sure that we, we do the biopsies in the patients that most need it. And perhaps also it may, it will probably, I think, revolutionize the molecular imaging that we do uh, to help us make sure that we target the bits of tumor that are probably going to give us uh, the, the best areas uh, for, for yield, and perhaps also help us not do biopsies on tumors which are too heterogeneous, where we can't rely on, on the, the biopsy result itself. Uh, but, but quite a lot of work to be done to, to work out the sensitivity and specificity of these treatment strategies um, before we get to that era, I think. Okay. Thanks, Arjun. And I think as this uh, space develops, uh, I suspect... Uh, the liquid biopsy is going to become part of our routine diagnostic pathway, but we'll uh, obviously have to watch that space uh, uh, with interest. Um, so um, we're at 6.30. Uh, I want to thank everybody um, for, uh, for their attention. Um, I want to thank particularly uh, colleagues at BTOG for, uh, for arranging this and the IT um, uh, uh, colleagues as well who have set up uh, uh, our lovely platform and particularly to thank our panelists for uh, for the uh, engaging discussion um, just as um, uh, the last slide just to say that uh, uh, please uh, find time in your diaries if you can for uh, our next webinar which is on Thursday the 3rd of December at, uh, at 5 30 which will be uh, a masterclass on uh, stage 3 disease um, so thank you everyone again for your attention and uh, have a very good evening.